Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words you have torn in our mouth, the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and our offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Bless you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Amen. You would open your Bibles to the chapter of Genesis, chapter 14. We're going to read chapter 14, then we're going to comment on chapter 14, and a little bit of chapter 13, Bezra to Shem, because there's things that we didn't get to share or talk about last week that I think are vital to our everyday lives. Chapter 14. And it happened in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. Ariok, the king of Elshar, Hedolomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of Goyim, that these made war on Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. All these had joined at the valley of Sidim, now the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Hedor-Lemer, and they rebelled thirteen years. In the fourteenth years, hedor and the kings who were with him came and struck the Rephaim at Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Hemim at Sheba Kirathim, and the Horites in the, their mountains of Seir, as far as the plain of Paran, which is by the desert. Then they turned back and came to Ain Mishpat, which is in Kadesh. They struck all the territory of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwell in Hazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom went forth with the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, which is Zoar, and engaged them in battle in the valley of Sidim, with Helodomer, the king of Elam, Tildal, the king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariak, the king of Elisar, four kings against five. The valley of Sidim was full of bitumen wells. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell into them, while the rest fled to a mountain. They seized all the wealth of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they departed. And they captured Lot and his possessions, Abraham's, ne Abraham's nephew, and they left where he was residing in Sodom. Then there came the fugitive and told Avram, the Evri, who dwelt in the plains of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshkel, and the brother of Abner, these being Avram's allies, and when Avram heard that his kinsman was taken captive, he armed his disciples who had been born in his house, 318, and he pursued them as far as Don. Abraham believed in the Second Amendment because they had arms. <laughs> and he with his servants deployed against them at night and struck them. He pursued them as far as Holbah which is in the north of the Damascus. He brought back all the possessions. He also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions, as well as the women and the people. The king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from defeating Hedelomer and the kings that were with him to the valley of Sheva, which is the king's valley. But Melchizedek, king of Shalem, Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God, the Most High. He blessed him, saying, Blesses Avram of God, the Most High, maker of heaven and earth, and blesses God, the Most High, who has delivered your foes into your hand, and he gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Avram, Give me the people and take the possessions for yourselves. Avram said to the king of Sodom, I lift up my hand to Hashem, God of the Most High, maker of heaven and earth, if so much as a thread of a shoe strap, or if I shall take from anything of yours, so you shall not say, It is I who made Avram rich. Far from me. Only what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who accompanied me, Abner, Eshkel, and Mamre, they will take their portion. And that concludes the reading of the 14th chapter. I want to begin commenting on this chapter by reading the passage from the opening of the book of Yochanan, chapter 1. The book of Yochanan, chapter 1. We can turn there. 
Very familiar passage, very important passage, a very sold-level Kabbalistic passage. Some people say, I don't believe in uh, uh, like Kabbalistic thought in Judaism. Well, it's a challenge because the book of Yochanan is almost entirely Kabbalistic in its approach to the Messiah. But you haven't been taught that because no one teaches what we teach. In, not yet, that's right. Except for in Tulsa. <laughs> in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let me read that again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is a Jewish idea, has been for millennia, that the Torah and God are the same. The Torah and Hashem are the one and the same. They're not separate. It says here, this is what it's saying in Yochanan, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Everything was made to exist through Him. Nothing that was made. Who's the Him that's being spoken of here? It's the Word. Right? Everything was made through Him, the Word of God, and nothing that was made exists was made... Ex- to exist except by him. This also is talked about in the book of Mishle, the book of Proverbs 28, 28. Where it does for the Sephardic Jews out there, the 28. So it says there that, that God brought forth wisdom. It didn't say created, but brought forth wisdom at the beginning of his works. And that the wisdom, the wisdom in the book of Proverbs is a euphemism for Torah, that wisdom... Through wisdom, everything was made that was made. I want you to understand this reality. That you and I were made with Torah. That the chair that you're sitting on is made with Torah. The concrete foundation of this building is Torah. The grass outside is Torah. The bird flying, the one that just flew over the building... (laughs) It's a robin. That's right. I was going to think blue jay, but... Um, colorblind. It's uh, that's made with Torah. Everything is made with Torah. The air you're breathing right now is made with Torah. This is what the Bible says. The B I B L E. Therefore, if we don't believe in Torah or we don't think it's relevant for today, that is going to create some challenges, won't it? Such as we won't be able to have air or water. Or dirt. It's going to create a foundation problem at your house. If we remove Torah, Torah no longer exists anymore. We do, we, we're done with it, right? Because the Bible says everything that was made was made with it. And you could, you could make the argument that this very, this very planet is the manifestation of Torah. Which is what the sages say, by the way. It just occurred to me that that's exactly what they say, that actually that... Nature is really just a facade that really God is nature because everything, it makes sense because if everything is made with Torah, then everything would be ultimately an expression of God. Not that the tree is God, we're not going to get crazy. But it's an illustration there. So it says, there was life in him. In who, who's the him? The word. It's being spoken about. There was life in him, and that life was a light for the sons of men. Remember, here, the him being spoken of is the word of God, and that light is the light of men. This is talking about the primordial light of creation, not sunlight, not moonlight, not candlelight, but the light of creation, the light of Torah, the light which is actually light, the light that we see, that we call light, is really just a copy of the light. We couldn't even handle the light. It says this, the light shone in the darkness and the darkness did not overtake it. So it goes on into in, in verse 14. It says the word was made flesh and dwelt in our midst. Literally it says made a tabernacle in our midst. 
That's what the literal translation says. The word, the word of God came and made a sukkah with us. Which is why the Feast of Tabernacles is the festival of the, of the wedding supper of the Lamb. Because Hashem made his sukkah with us so that later we will make our sukkot with him. So it says here, the word was made flesh and dwelt in the midst. We have beheld his glory like the glory of a father's only son, great in kindness and truth. Now, why am I reading that with respect to our story about Abraham defeating the kings and rescuing Lot? Well, we're going to get a, a, a lot of Rabbi Monk today. We're going to curl up with a cup of coffee and listen to Rabbi Monk share some insights. But Rabbi Monk's commentary has something very intriguing because we look for precedents in Jewish thought. Precedents in Jewish thought which help us to understand and or confirm the idea that we have in, in the, in the Basora. So in the Basora, the idea is that the Word of God was with God, and the Word of God was God, it's basically one and the same with God. There's, there's really no difference, though it seems as if there's a difference. And that that Word of God became manifest. It, there was an incarnation of the Word of God in our midst. That's what John is saying, right? The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That seems crazy, but where did flesh come from? From the Word of God. You know, we had this discussion on Thursday night with the Talmudim. We said, people always say that man was made from dust of the earth. That's partly true. The scripture actually says that God caused the mist to come up over the earth. So actually, we're made with, with water in dirt. Water is always representative of Torah. But where did the dust come from? The dust is made up of Torah as well. So anyway, this is what uh, Rabbi Monk talks about when he says to his comment to Rishit 14, verse 4. Verse 4 says, 12 years they served uh, Hedelamer, and they rebelled 13 years. 12 years they served, and they rebelled in the 13th. They rebelled 13 years. So there's a battle between 12 and 13 here. That's what the inside is saying. It says, Rabbi Ephraim of Lutschitz, the author of the book, Olat Ephraim, was recognizing the legitimacy of the philo of Alexandria's explanation of this text allegorically. This is what he says. There's a hidden meaning here. The text without being intended to be a substitute for the literal meaning. He explains the verse in relation to the first 12 years in the life of a man. When the five senses of the soul are enslaved by the four elements of nature. Indeed, he writes, tradition states that man's natural instincts rule unopposed by his reason until he reaches the age of 13. This is why 13 is bar mitzvah time. That you're not able to conquer your, your yetzer hara until you reach the age of 13. But even then, you're not eligible to go before the court, particularly for a capital punishment case, until you reach the age of 20. So there's a seven-year growth period. Now, we talk about this aspect, by the way, just as an aside. We talk about this in the, in the conversion class. If you've been... In Lapid Judaism, for one year, or two years, or four years, or five years, or six years, or ten years, don't let anybody judge you by whether or not your Jewish, your Jewish Jedi skills are good enough or not. You know? Have to laugh sometimes when you have people who are like, well, your Hebrew is not that great. Half, or actually more than half the Jewish people in the world don't even know how to read Hebrew. From a sitter. 
which is why they have Hebrew learning class. You do realize that's not for you, right? Oh, you didn't realize that the Hebrew class they have on suchandsuch.com wasn't for non-Jews. You thought it was there to educate the world on how to read Hebrew. <laughs> no. There have been whole books written. There have been whole classes put forth just to help Jews learn how to read their own language. I'm not casting stones. I'm just simply saying I'm putting things in perspective. Like our sages have written about, a young man spends his entire first 13 years just so he can come up here and read from the Torah scroll. Some of you have come in here like ninjas and within a year or two learn how to read and are able to approach the Brema and read from a scroll. Are you kidding me? You're like, that's Superman stuff right there. Think about it. 13 years they're in Shabbat school every day learning how to read Torah so they can come up here and just read their portion. And most of them are terrified when they do it after 13 years. And you come up here and you're like ashamed. I've only been doing this a year. I know I should be really better at this. And we're like jaw drop like. And then you can't even stand before the court until you reach the age of 20. So really... No one should be judging anybody on how good or not good of a Jew they are until 20 years into the faith. Then you can start having a conversation. Come on, man, 20 years. You don't know the Barak about now? Now you can have a conversation. But people are trying to, <laughs> people are trying to like slap them down on, on, at year five. How, much, how, how, good, how good is a five-year-old at Torah? Come on. Put things in perspective. So anyway, it says, It says, By four elements of nature, indeed, tradition states a man's nature, including relative to the third. Oh, you read that part? Sorry. It says, But in the thirteenth year, they rebel. At this age, the spiritual forces of the soul begin to oppose the elemental forces of physical nature. Accordingly, a full-scale war breaks out in the 14th year when the latter try to regain lost ground. So for 12 years, the Yetzirah rules over man. and 13th year, his spiritual... Um, Yetzer Tov rises up and begins to war so that in the 14th year, there is a full-on war going on between the good side and the evil side inside a, a, a man's soul. Where does the victory come? From where does the victory come? Remember, I want you to think precedent. We're looking for precedence. We're looking for Jewish thought that would confirm John 1 because John 1 was written all by Jews. Right? So it says here, after a fierce battle raging back and forth, it is Avram, the incarnation of divine law, who finally comes to liberate the five kings, representing the factors of the soul for good from the subjugation of the four kings who personify the four basic elements of nature. It's saying here that what is going to help us win the battle over the evil inclination? What is going to cause us to have the victory to have a spiritual life. And the answer to the equation is we have to have, say have to. We have to have the incarnation of divine law. That's what's being said here. You have to have the incarnation of divine law. That's, that's the sowed level. That's the hidden. Notice it says this is the hidden meaning. You know, something that's hidden is not easy to find. A hidden meaning 
insinuates, infers, implies, to quote Zakin Rayford, that you have to search it out and look for it. It's not, it's not obvious. It's not in your face. It's something that comes after years of study that you begin to have that illumination. That, my friends, is what's also called Kabbalistic thought. So on the Kabbalistic level, in order to defeat the evil in your life, you need the incarnation of divine law, which here is being represented by Avram. That is what we're looking, for, looking at. Now, it's also interesting to note, as an aside, that something that was, was brought out... Um, is the motive for war. The motive for war. What was the motive? By the way, the word incarnation, I, just, I, just, I have here the definition just to understand what it means when we say incarnation. A person who embodies in the flesh a deity, spirit, or abstract quality. That's the official definition. What, there, what was the, war, the, the, the reason... The motive for these kings to go to war ultimately. Again, we have a hidden level. We have the Peshat level. We have the surface level in the Torah. We see what their motivation is. The motivation is rebellion. Hey, look, you rebelled against me. You're no longer paying taxes, so I'm, I'm coming to get you. And so it says here, on the hidden level, on a Kabbalistic level, the Zohar, it says, makes it even more explicit this war was, in the final analysis, Avram's war. The mighty kings wanted to kill him. Why did the mighty kings, why did the, these elements of evil, these four elements of evil, why did they want to kill Avraham? Why did they want to get rid of Avraham? Here's the answer. They wanted to kill him because he turned the population away from idolatry and led them to the love of God. Now, it is at this point in time, Abraham is the first Jew. Rabbi Monk makes that clear. Everybody makes that clear. He's the first Jew. At this point in time, is he teach, is he, does he have a website for Jewish people? Why? Why wouldn't he have a website for Jewish people? Because there aren't any Jewish people aside from him. He and Sarah are the first Jewish couple. So the way to grow the family at this point, because they don't have any children, not natural children. So the only way to grow the family here, in other words, the primordial way of expanding the family is vis-a-vis -vis conversions. Oh, no, you missed that. Now, so you thought that the Jewish people was a race, and if you weren't born a Jew, you weren't a Jew. But as I, as I brought out in the conversion class, the problem with that is that the first Jew wasn't born a Jew. And so neither do Jew. So it says the mighty kings wanted to kill him because he was turning the population away from idolatry and led them to a love of God. They wanted to kill him because they were leading people, he was leading people to the true faith of God, which is Judaism. But as soon as they had taken Lot prisoner, they went their way. Why? Well, it says because he looked like Abraham to such an extent that they at first thought that he was Abraham. They captured Lot because they thought, oh, we captured Abraham. Now, what's interesting about this, what's interesting about this is that as Amet pointed out, something that I had not uh, heard, or I don't remember hearing anyway, I guess I heard it, but Amet said, that there's a source talking about the fact that Abraham looked like Adam, which makes total sense. Now, what's interesting about that? Let's follow the logical ball bouncing across. Remember that old-timey stuff? Now you watch on your iPhone. Back then, it was on a tube TV. 
Now, Abraham looked like Adam. Isaac, the sages tell us, was a spitting image, an exact replica of Abraham. Which means that Isaac looked like Adam too, right? Adam looked like Hashem. Adam looked so much like Hashem that the Midrash Shabbat tells us that when the angels first saw Adam, they bowed down to him to worship, and God had to say, that's not me, guys. Which, if God doesn't have an image, that story doesn't make any sense, right? Just saying. Isaac was offered on the altar by his father, which would thus mean that the image of God was offered on the altar. If Abraham looks like Adam, and Isaac looks like Abraham, and Adam looks like Hashem, and Isaac is offered on the altar by his father, it means that when he offered his son on the altar, he was literally offering on the altar the image of Hashem. Why? The sages tell us that the reason that Isaac was offered is because that is ultimately where atonement for the Jewish people would be found. So, the precedent is that the atonement for God's people is found in the offering of the image of the Father on the altar. Offered by the Father. In other words, you could almost say that since Isaac looked like Abraham, and Abraham looked like Adam, and Adam looked like Hashem, You could even say that the father was actually offering his own image on the altar for our atonement. And I just want to remind everybody that God follows his patterns. Now, Abram rushed to the scene of his nephew. He did not call 911. Abraham went to his Winchester gun locker and he got out some weapons, okay? And he rushed to the rescue of his nephew. He decided forthwith, it says here, and although his temper inclined toward pity for all creatures, he showed himself a courageous, intrepid fighter. So, Just like the United States emblem. The United States emblem is an eagle with its head. In one talon, it's got olive branches. In the other talon, it has arrows. The head of the eagle is is toward the olive branch talon, talon. That is sending the message that we have our faces turned towards peace. We want peace. We desire peace. But we have a talon full of arrows, and if you cause us trouble, we will bring it. So Abraham is that eagle. He's all about peace, but in this case, he says, you're not going to take my nephew. Now, surely Abraham knew the inner meaning of why they were wanting to fight against him to begin with. This is all about stopping the plan of God. You have to understand that in Abraham's mind, this is, he has before him always the plan of God. Not about him personally. It's about Hashem. It says the divine presence which began again to spread over the earth thanks to Abraham accompanied him into battle for Abraham had employed him to be his helper as it says in Psalms 83, 2-3 O God, take no rest for yourself. Be not silent and keep not still. O Almighty, for your enemies make a tumult and they that hate you have lifted up their head. So we have Abraham who is going out with the help of the Shekinah of God. Now all this is going along and he brings back the spoils. He brings back Lot. He meets Melchizedek. Melchizedek is actually Shem, the son of Noah. There's another precedence, but I don't have time to get into. But when Shem blesses Abraham, the sages bring down that he transferred the priesthood to Abraham. And the reason that happened was because Shem's sons were not worthy of the priesthood. So unfortunately, he couldn't go to them. Melchizedek is a title. So he gave the priesthood to Abraham. At this time, Abraham is already considered a king. 
Now remember that Abraham represents the incarnation of the divine law. We already covered that. He is now considered to be a king already. He's considered to be a king. When Melchizedek transfers the priesthood to him, the incarnation of the divine law is now a king and a priest after the order of Melchizedek. What does he do? Essentially, not too far down the road, he offers the image of the Father on the altar for the atonement of our sins. Who does that? Who offers the image of the Father on the altar for the atonement of our sins? That is a king and priest after the order of Melchizedek. God follows his patterns always. Now, this is exactly why the incarnation of God's law, who was born a king, went to the river Jordan to meet with Yochanan, the priest, to be immersed by him so that he could receive the priesthood so that he would be a priest and king after the order of Melchizedek. That's why that went down like that. At the Jordan. <laughs> it says, remember Yeshua said that heaven rejoices over the one sinner who's brought to repentance? He said that, right? Yeshua said, listen, this is, this is what makes heaven glad. That's the reason he said it, because that's what Judaism says. It says he pursued them as far as Hobah, which is in the north of Damascus. Rabbi Abahu said, when the righteous see the forsaken who is the prisoner of his own faults, he goes to help him. Perhaps he will bring him back to do good. He draws the sinner to him and instructs him in what is right. As it is said, he pursued them as far as Dan. That is, he followed him right to the place of justice. That is, Dan is another word for Dean. Why did he do that? It says here, and I quote, to save him from hell. This is Rabbi Mung's commentary, by the way. To save him from hell. Someone said, did Jews believe in hell? I'm reading Rabbi Mung's commentary, and it says, we're doing this to save him from hell. So the answer would be yes. But he goes still further, sparing no effort day and night. As it says, and he with his servants deployed against them at night and struck them. He pursued them as far as Hobah. This means that he went so far as to discipline sinners physically and to uncover for them their hova, that is their faults, which they committed by going to the left instead of going to the right. But the righteous person finally succeeds in bringing all earthly goods back, as it says, Vayeshev et kol harkush, that is, to their true destination. And he also brought back his kinsman Lot, with his possessions, as well as the women and the people, to God. Well, who did he bring him to? To God. It says they were helpless to resist the strong influence of Abraham's purity and his faith. It says, see how great is the reward of the one who brings his fellow back to God. That is, the king of justice, Malachi Zedek, who reigns over the heavenly Jerusalem, meaning the archangel Michael, the priest of God Most High, goes out to meet him and to offer him friendship and hospitality. What it's saying here is that when we bring one sinner back to God, the ruler of the angels come out to greet us and offer us friendship and hospitality. This is why Yeshua said that heaven rejoices over one sinner you bring back. This is why. Going back to chapter 13 for a moment. I wanted to look at a few insights that have to do with Lot leaving Abraham's presence. And what can we learn from this and how can we avoid potential pitfalls in our life? Rabbi Monk says, So Abraham went up from Egypt. Rabbi Shimon he points out, Rabbi Shimon said, Abraham went up from Egypt uninfluenced by its immorality. Abraham was able to go to Egypt and not be influenced by its immorality. For Adam and Noah 
contact with the outside world was fraught with temptations, was actually harmful to them. They weren't able to withstand it. But as far as being seduced by the Egyptian civilization, Abraham returned exactly to the same level of wisdom that he had when he left. Thus, it says, his exile into Egypt was not a moral downfall. On the contrary, Abraham triumphed over his test and returned to the Holy Land. Therefore, it was an aliyah. It was a step upward. What is more, after building altars, proclaiming the name of God, and receiving the divine revelation of Bethel, Abraham felt that in order to reach the highest degree of holiness, listen to this, in order to reach the highest degree of holiness, he's done all this great stuff. He's built an altar. He's talked to God. He's received divine revelation. And now, now Abraham is saying to himself, I need to get to the highest level of Kedusha. Now, all of us will be thinking, right, so you need to go up the ladder. Go up. Do something else. Stand on Mount Sinai and cry out and let God come down. That's the highest level. And Abraham said, no, in order to reach the highest level, I have to go to the lowest level. And I want you to follow here. I want to, my ministry is a lot of things, but what I want it to be is about patterns. I want you I want this word pattern to be emblazoned on your brain. That every time you read God's word, that you just wake, you wake up in the middle of the night. There was a pattern there. So this is what it says. It says, he felt that in order to reach the highest degree of holiness, he still had to be exposed to corruption and to purify his soul in the crucible of Egypt. Isn't that what it says about Yeshua, that he came here to be tested, to endure, and because he went through the crucible of what it's like to live in this flesh, that because of that we have a, a great high priest who's able to sympathize with us on every level. There's nothing that he hasn't gone through. Isn't that what makes a leader a leader? Who would follow a leader through a treacherous obstacle course who has himself never gone through it? My daughter Hadassah and I were having this conversation on the way in this morning. She was talking about kind of a continuation of a conversation we had yesterday about going through obstacle courses and all those kind of things. And uh, talk about military stuff. When I was in the service, we were all lined up in front of this obstacle course. Now we were 18 years old. I was 170 pounds. I haven't seen that since I was 18 years old. <laughs> and we, I, I, I can't speak for anybody else. I just speak for myself. Looking at this obstacle course, I was going, oh, yeah, okay, no. I was going to be in the Marine Corps. Now I think I can be a bus driver. And so all the drill instructors were telling us about the obstacles and what we had to do and how to do it. And they weren't just telling us, like, okay, guys, you're going to, they were, like, yelling at us. And then they all took off their covers, which were sacred, put them on the little bench, and every one of them ran the course. And then they came back around and said, all right, now you do it. Who wants to follow a leader that says, I want you to go through this very dangerous obstacle course, everything? Okay, how did you make it through? I ain't never done it. <laughs> but you can do it because <laughs> I saw it on YouTube. And so we follow a God who knows what it's like. He can't say to us, hey, I don't understand how you were such a failure. No, he says, no, I get it. I get it. I know what it's like. And Abraham is saying here, I've got to be able to go to the crucible of Egypt in order to reach the highest level. That's counterintuitive to go down in order to go up. The kingdom of God and the economy of God are very often opposite of what we think. This is why the sages say, the sages say it, don't, do not throw anything, don't, I'm telling you, don't throw anything at me. The sages said, tithe to get rich. The sages said that. They said, tithe in order to get rich. Give away money in order to get wealthy? No, no stockbroker is going to tell you that. Right, Zal? 
And so he went down into this land of perdition, but it was a descent in order to rise up. It says, so too a Jewry who could become the people of God only after they had faced and withstood the Egyptian influence, and they went up. Now Abraham, it goes on to say, that he went back to pay his debts. But what does it mean, pay his debts? Rashi brings down this. Rashi says that wherever he went, Abraham was proclaiming the power of God, the creator of heaven and earth, and calling men to his service. Everywhere Abraham went, he was encouraging people to join the faith. I want that to be emblazoned on your brain. He never qualified it. He didn't say, are you short or fat or or tall, or, or, or white, or black, or Jewish, or who was your mama, what was her maiden name? No, he never asked any question. He said, I want to introduce you to the God of Israel. Here's your qualifier. You ready? This is your one qualifier, and I think most people will qualify. Here's your qualifier. According to Abraham, do you breathe? If you breathe, you qualify to come into the kingdom of heaven. Most people are going to qualify. If you don't qualify, see Ezekiel immediately. (laughs) And probably Mikhail Thomas. (laughs) Or or Yaakov back there revive you. He said, many, many, though, did not believe in him and asked, if Abraham is telling the truth, why does this God let him, let his faithful servant wander around endlessly? Why doesn't he reward him with happiness, calm, and rest? I've never seen the righteous forsaken or, or his seed begging bread, right? Remember that? Abram could not answer these questions, all the more so as the wanderings were inflicted upon him as, his, as a test of his love for God. So he remained in debt of his fellows, quote-unquote. This is Rashi's explanation. But when he returned rich and famous from, from Mitzrayim, said everyone knew that he was able to pay back his debts by answering his detractors. Now, Abraham returns to his altar. Abraham is on a high level spiritually, but he wants to rise to the the next level. So in order to rise to the next level, he descends into the lowest form of debauchery so that he can ascend to an even higher level. Exactly what Yeshua did. Remember, Abraham is the incarnation of divine law. The incarnation of divine law, who is the image of the Father, because he looks like Adam, he looks like Hashem goes down to Egypt in order to ascend. But what is it? when he comes back to Egypt, does he start a whole new ballgame? Does he start a whole new religion? When he comes back from Egypt, does he say, all right, now that I'm back from Egypt, there's a new religion on the market. For one low price of 1999. No, is that what he does? No. It says he goes back to the altar. These words, El Makom Hamizbeach, mean... Or could be, they're, they're literally translated to the site of the altar. But it can be interpreted to the level of the altar. It says here in the insights, which he had previously built, all the riches and knowledge he had gained, all the honor given to him by the king of Egypt was not able to cause his absolute, to, to change his absolute fidelity to the true message. Abraham returned straight away to the place that he belonged, to the place of the altar. What did Yeshua say? Yeshua said, as soon as I leave this place, I will ascend to the right hand of the Father, to the very place I was before I left. That's exactly what Abraham did. He left Egypt then went right back to the altar from where he left to go to Egypt. Why? Because it's all a message. I'm going right back to my place and resume what I had done to begin with, which was this. It says here that he went to this place. Where was this place? It says this place was Mount Moriah. That's the Temple Mount. And from where later the Torah, it says, will spread to all parts of the world. Say all. 
all parts of the, of the world, not just Brooklyn. I'm not trying to reach a block. I'm trying to reach a world. It says, uh, here Abraham, the father of all believers. What? I'm reading a commentary, an Orthodox Jewish commentary. Abraham is called the father of all believers. He's a Jewish, he's the first Jew, that's true. And he's also the father of all believers, which means what? If Father Abraham has many sons, then all those sons are Jewish. He says that this Mount Morial was his headquarters. <laughs> the incarnation of the divine law's headquarters is the holy temple. The image of the Father. He was but, had one, one, but one goal in life, it says here, and that was to proclaim the word of God. Now, Lot had... What was Lot's... I'm going I'm to speed, speed race through this last topic because I want to get to this. Lot had a, a motive. Lot wanted, he, Lot's problem was when he came out of Egypt, he was, he was turned on by Egypt. So he wanted to go to Sodom. He wanted that debauchery. He wanted that life. But why? Like, what was the inner root of that? Where did that come from? In other words, why did Abraham be, why was he successful and why was Lot not? Well, here's a life lesson for us. It says here, um, this is a, kind of an insight brought down again by the Zohar, and Lot journeyed from the east. Rashi explains that allegorically this means that he separated himself from the one who existed before the world had come into the beginning. This is, this is Mekedim. He separated himself from God. So the first step towards instability in our life is when we, we separate from God, where we, we begin to drift towards materiality. Our spiritual life becomes not all that important to us. That's step number one. It says, Lot said, I want neither Abraham nor his God. Like his father Haran, it says, Lot was unstable and changeable. That's another thing to watch out for, is when we have instability in our life and we're changeable, we just go back and forth one day we're here, one day we're there, we're hot, we're cold. We all go through hills and valleys in our spiritual walk. That's to be expected. Sometimes you feel really excited and sometimes you don't. But those moments where you don't feel excited, you still press through. I'll be honest with you. Can I be honest with you? I'm honest with you every week, so I'm going to be honest with you like I am always honest with you. Sometimes you go through stuff. People hurt you in an environment like this. They hurt you bad. I've been hurt by some real, I've been hurt bad by people here at this church that are no longer here. You have to be kind of, you know, thick-skinned and suck it up. You only curl up like a baby in a fetal position behind closed doors. <laughs> right? But there's times when people hurt you so bad where you're at the store. I'll just give you an example. You're at the store shopping, and you don't even want to look for a hex shirt. You know, you're hurt. It's normal. You know what you do in that moment? You look for the hex shirt anyway because it's the right thing to do. Because you don't have to be on a spiritual high to look for a hex shirt. Oh, look, I'm flighty today. I want to look for a hex shirt. And then you're going through a bad walk. I don't care. Just give me a ham sandwich. Or not even a ham sandwich. I don't care. I'll just buy the non-kosher beef. Which is also, by the way, gross. But I'm just saying. I'm just being real and honest. That in those moments when you feel low, you just have to press through because it's the right. You do the right thing because it's the right thing. This is why people that are led by the Spirit, you know what that really, that really is a euphemism for I'm emotionally driven. People that are led by the Spirit are led by their emotions. It is okay to, be, to have tears and have 
discouragement, somebody's hurt you, whatever, it's okay to do that and to put on your tallit anyway and not be like super excited about it, but you're doing it, why? Because it's the right thing to do. I've been through that, my friends. I know what that's like. And that's what Lot did not know how to do. He was unstable and unchangeable. And when he got hurt and got frustrated, he was willing to go to the next thing that would make him feel better because he was emotion-driven. So it says, when he left Chaldea, he chose to follow Abraham and his God, but on his return from, from the polytheistic Egypt, he favored the pagans and the idols. Now, real quick, because I'm running out of time. It says that after Lot left, the Shekinah of God returned to Abraham. Because it says God does not tolerate the righteous and the impious living side by side. If you ever have people in your life, and when they leave, it's hurtful, and it's terrible, and it's like, oh, God, I just feel like I just want to just take the sword, put it on the thing, and just fall on it. But then after they leave, you feel revived. You're like, why do I feel light and airy? Like I want to sing Hillel's daffodils and, and uh, daiquiri song. The reason is, is it's just what, this is what happened to Avraham. Avraham was under the suppression he didn't even realize he was under because he didn't know what was going on in Lot's life. And when they finally had their big fight and breakup, which was, you know that was traumatic, right? And then his, 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 they, Lot looked like him. He watched his image walk towards Sodom. You know that was painful. You know there was tears. You know there was a big fight. And then he watched him walk to Sodom, and he's got tears in his eyes, and all of a sudden he feels revived, like that weight has been lifted. The reason is the Shekinah comes back and says, I couldn't be with you while he was with you. But now that he's gone, now the Spirit is flowing again in your life. Nobody wants that to happen. But again, just like I can tell you, you get hurt, you, you don't want to do things. I can also tell you that when those people who hurt me left, all of a sudden it was like a stopper in the spiritual dam was lifted and things got remarkably better. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants Lot to go to Sodom. But you can't keep Lot from going to Sodom if they want to go, if he wants to go to Sodom. And you don't follow him, that's right. You sure don't follow him to Sodom. What's wrong with you? We say, Baruch, Habab, Hashem, Adonai. 